Welcome to Tonebenders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today, as always, it's Tim Muirhead. How you doing, Tim? Not bad, Renee. How are you doing? It feels like we've been like releasing in like parallel podcasts yeah. for the last few months. <laughs> your turn, my turn, your turn, my turn. But I promise we're both still in the podcast together. Yeah, um, the internet has been on fire with rumors of our demise and how we hate each other behind the scenes. It's not true, people. <laughs> it's not. <laughs> we've, we've just never actually met, so there's that. Yeah, there's that. Yeah, how, do we, how can we hate each other when we've never been in the same room? I gotta, I've got to get a passport so I can actually go up to Canada and say hi to you people. Yeah, bring it on. I got to get. I have a passport, but I got to get down to Texas to say hi to you. So, anyways, we're jumping on at the beginning of this interview that you did with Mark Mangini. Mark Mangini is one of the top sound people in the world right now. He did Blade Runner twenty forty nine, which just came out. His IMDb list is as deep as it can get, but the highlights include Mad Max Fury Road and The Fifth Element. Um, I'm looking at The Book of Life, which I absolutely love, also. Uh, Metallica through the never man. There's just warrior. Oh, you did goes warrior. all the way back to Indiana Jones. Like the guy's been doing it forever. When you think about the caliber and the quality and the style of those specific films and the fact that he was in the front of the, um, of the sound team of that, it's uh it's pretty spectacular. What a cool opportunity to get to sit down and talk to him. Yeah. It was really cool because He's one of the, you know, maybe five or six guys that you don't really need to give an introduction to for the sound post people in the world. Right. I explained him to my wife. I was like, he did the sound for all your favorite movies when I told her that I was going to be interviewing him. So she was just like, oh, okay. So yeah, he, he's one of those guys who almost needs no introduction. But after we finished the interview, I kind of sat down and thought to myself, like, that was a really down-to-earth guy. Like, he was totally... A warm and inviting and uh, super, super nice guy. You know, you find that with a lot of the of the top people is that they they you can't have an ego about yourself to achieve a certain level of uh, of artistry. I guess some of the really, really best actors and the best directors and the best sound artists out there they they really do have to be down to earth in order to even get to that level. People that have an inflated sense of themselves. Uh, they also have lower ceilings, I guess, on their careers sometimes. Than- yeah, Mark actually kind of addresses that in this interview, as you'll hear coming up, when he talks about how since he won an Oscar, he people give him too much respect and defer to him, and he doesn't like it. He wants to fight out the ideas and have conversations and pull out everybody's ideas. And since he won the Oscar, everyone's just going, oh, well, he's got an Oscar. He must be right about this. Right. And, and he's, he's like, that's the downside of winning an Oscar. I, I cried for him. It was a real tough life for him. Yeah, that's that's a hard <laughs> thing to do, you know. Well, cool. So with no further ado. Before we do that, uh, I just got to mention that Teresa sat in on this interview too. So when they start hearing it. Can I say before we get into that, how awesome Teresa has been through this whole New York trip that you guys did. And just as another voice in the podcast, as an interviewer, she's spectacular. And I really, really love what she's been doing. And it's it's such a treat for me um, to get to sit down to a podcast that I'm a part of and just have it hit my feed before I've listened to it and, and hear not only what you're doing and also what she's doing. And I'm just, I'm proud to be a part of it. And I think it's, I think she's been adding a ton and I really, really love what she's been doing as well. Yeah. Teresa has been a great addition to the podcast so far. I hope that she's able to do some more for us in the future for sure. So here is Tim, Teresa and Mark Mangini. Yeah. We started the interview by asking him how he likes to be referred to, cause he's not really a big fan of the word sound designer. He prefers the word sound artist. I'm trying to promote that idea in the community. There seems to be somewhat of a controversy about this sound designer description. 
Um, it's the, the term itself, while beautifully descriptive, can describe sort of a wide range of people, but it's been co-opted, uh, you know, arguably by these sort of sound effects creators of the world. And I, I don't think that's a full enough way to, to understand it. So um, I, I like the idea of sound artists, not that we should all start a, a movement. <laughs> and uh, I mean, this isn't an Occupy kind of a situation. I simply think that that's, when we talk about ourselves, I like how it conveys this idea that we're not technicians, and that, that's, a, that's a mantra for me. Someone recently made the comparison that calling a sound designer or a sound artist a technician is the same as calling someone who's writing a screenplay a technician because they're using a typewriter. Precisely. I, that's an apt analogy. Yeah, I like that one. So welcome to the show. Thanks for making the time to uh, sit in with us. Thank you. Uh, you just wanted to let everyone know that you're just getting over a cold and your voice might be a bit raspy? A little raspy, a little croaky. I may have to cough and sniffle a bit, so apologies ahead of time. <laughs> well, thanks for being a gamer and coming out anyway. We appreciate it. Sure. So one of the things that we uh, wanted to talk to you about is obviously uh, your long career. And you have a new sound effects library coming out called the Odyssey Collection. Do you want to just tell me quickly where this came from? What it came from was my desire to share a career's worth of sound recording because I'm, I just love sound recording and I've collected a pretty vast body of work. And I thought it would be fun in my later years to maybe hear some of those sounds that I've kept uniquely to myself in other people's films. And it felt like it was time... I, I get a giggle out of the idea that I'll hear it in films in the future, and I also feel like it's part of giving back. As I get older, I'm 61, and I, I'll, arguably I'll retire within the next year, 10 years or so. Um, I feel like part of my responsibility is to um, start teaching and giving back to the worldwide sound community, and this is one way of doing it. That's an interesting thing for you to say. There's a, a kind of running theme with this podcast has been the kind of conundrum that the audio industry has right now, as budgets tighten and uh, tools change, the idea of everyone having their own intern is kind of starting to disappear and how people are learning the industry is starting to change. Mm. I myself work a lot at home where I'm cutting and it's hard to have an intern at home and try and teach somebody. So the idea of giving back is something that we've uh, kind of ruminated a lot on this podcast about in the past. So that's a good way for you to do it, to pass your so sounds down. Uh, you know, I'm a big believer in community uh, with and family. I mean, I use that. That's a near and dear term to me in my personal life as well as my professional life. And you're right. I mean, you work from home, even here in Hollywood. It, it's not uncommon for a large crew on a, on a big tentpole film to be based in their individual homes scattered around Los Angeles. And I think that that part of the beauty of the creative process is the collaboration that you, you get with your, your peers and your, the people you work with, and that's starting to disappear. So how do we, how do we uh, hand down this accumulated knowledge? Because there's some really smart and creative people that have a lot to, to give. Uh, to that end, I have a blog. I have a website, markmangini.com, and, and I have had a running blog for some time. And I'm trying every month or two to add something in a way that imparts the, the, the sort of an accumulation of my experience so that I can pass it down that way. I was looking at your website and I saw that you had some links to readings. Yeah. And I thought that was kind of a nice thing to um, open up the idea of like what you're doing as a sound designer to new ideas 
um, and share that with other people and get new ideas into other people's heads. And I saw that you uh, you actually had a reading about Gordon Hempton, about yeah. silence yeah. and that idea, which is really like not something that film and television sound design is not a lot of room for the concept of silence and the <laughs> contemplation and careful listening and stuff like that so i really like that you were introducing that idea to people there's so much that's really fascinating about what he's doing silence being a big portion of it you know silence if nothing else is a choice and choice is part of your um, creative toolkit. And we, we forget that sometimes, that we, we think sound design is an additive process, but sound design is really a, just a storytelling process. Um, but, but I love, too, in, in that article that he talks about searching for the quietest place on earth, which is, which is something I'm obsessed with because um, I am surrounded by... I'm brutalized by sound my entire waking day <laughs> and living in Los Angeles. Uh, uh, even when I'm not working, I'm, I'm surrounded by sound. And, and you, you might be surprised to, to know that at home I have a very meager sound system. And, and when, I, when I do come home, I, I really like it quiet. I, I, I try to sort of decompress that way. It made me wonder, because obviously you're extremely busy and if you're involved in mixing a film you're working around the clock a lot of the times where do you get the time and the places to get inspirations and have a creative input that is outside of the realm of your work like where do those ideas come from on a daily basis or when you're off of a film or something like that so it begs the question um why did keith richards wake up in the middle of the night with satisfaction <laughs> you know, forcing its way out. Uh, I don't know where inspiration comes from. I honestly don't. I do know enough that when it occurs, I make sure to document it no matter when and where it is. Most often that's an idea. It's a sort of a light bulb moment. And I dictate the moment immediately into my phone. You know, there's a, like a notes app on my iPhone that I use religiously, and it's filled with thousands of pages of ideas because I never want to lose that sort of fleeting moment of, of, of inspiration because if I wait till I get to the studio to notate it or, or record it, it might be gone. So um, I don't know where inspiration comes from, but I do make a point of religiously documenting it immediately. Does that make, did that answer your question? Makes perfect sense. You don't know where it comes from, but you know how to wrangle it. <laughs> yeah, it does. I was watching, um, you did a talk at Westlake about Fury Road, yeah. which I recommend anybody to go on to YouTube and watch. It's really great. But there is an amazing moment in it that I was like, wow, he's like saying that it's therapy in a way because you're telling people to be kind of mindful and think about their feelings. And I was like, this is like yeah. never heard a sound designer talk about this before. <laughs> Could you just like give people a nutshell of like that concept? Um, you know, it's funny to hear you. I'm, I'm, I'm glad you got that vibe, but it embarrasses me at the same time because <laughs> I, I have to watch that I don't lean into sort of psychotherapy. <laughs> I try to stick with, with sound. But, 
it, it ties into this other theme, this artist theme. There, there's all these sort of related themes for me that that we're not technicians. We're not about sample rates and and uh, and speaker dispersion patterns. We're 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 empathetic, sympathetic beings, just like writers and actors, that just use um, sounds as our storytelling tools. Sounds are to us what words are to a screenwriter. And I know from my personal experience that screenwriters and actors and directors have developed those empathy skills in ways that we never learn in our, uh, um, uh, our apprenticeships. We learn the, the kilowatt stuff and the, 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 the sample rate stuff, but we never learned because our peers didn't learn it and their peers did. I mean, our, our, our predecessors weren't trained in that. They were trained by scientists and engineers to use a moviola or a multitrack. They weren't trained by um, uh, uh, individuals who understood character arc and storytelling. And those tools are so much more valuable to us. So I'm really trying to teach myself it and preach it all at the same time. Let's talk about you brought up Fury Road, Teresa. Let's talk about that a little bit because I think that that was a movie that uh, when it when I first saw that it was coming out, I was like, really, a new Mad Max movie? Okay, is that why? Kind of was what went through my head. And uh, earlier in this uh, in the podcast, an episode I think it was thirty nine, we interviewed a man named Oliver Matchin who was on the set of Mad Max. Oh, he's a, yeah, he's amazing. Yeah, and he recorded all of the uh, vehicles before they were destroyed because they were all going to get. Uh, blown up. So we talked to him and we set up the interview for the day after the movie came out here in North America. And uh, I, I thought it was going to be an interesting talk. I love talking to people about uh, recording vehicles. And uh, so I went and saw the movie and my head exploded. Like I literally, when it was over, stood up as if I was going to applaud. I thankfully didn't because that would have been embarrassing. <laughs> but like I was just like, I, my, my mind was blown. And, uh, and now, since that's come out, we've heard lots of stories that that was not the easiest soundtrack to get to the end of. And I was wondering if you could uh, fill in some of the stories behind that. Well, let's start with Oliver uh, and what a success story his work was. You know, um, it's really a testament to George Miller and his faith and belief in sound as a storytelling tool that he allocated time and money, which almost never happens, to extensive production on the set sound effects recording. And that's what Oliver was brought on to do exclusively. While, while <clears throat> George was off in the desert capturing imagery with Ben Osmo, did an extraordinary job, and we can talk about that as well, Oliver had his a whole second unit of sound. Not second unit camera, which we're all familiar with. They're off doing the stunts and the the vehicles and things. Oliver was taking those vehicles when they weren't in service of the production uh, photographically and recording every sound that they made. And he created this amazingly detailed and beautifully captured audio library as the basis for the movie. You know, and and, and George uh, understood that the vehicles visually were every bit a character just like Furiosa and Max and so why not capture them orally as their own distinct um, characters? And that's what Oliver would do one at a time. The war rig, the, 
the, the Giga Horus, et cetera, et cetera. He would bring them out into the desert with a team of two other gentlemen, and he would record them religiously uh, for, for hours and hours and hours to give us this very full library of every possible maneuver that they could make. So um, th- th- that was genius, and it, it's sadly, uh, uh, we very rarely see that, the, the the benefits are manifest if you like the sound of Mad Max, and I would argue that very many people did. If you don't, there's something. <laughs> I, I don't mean that ego. I, I don't mean that egotistically, um, but these are the manifest benefits of that kind of approach to a, a religious um, dedication to sound. So, um, I was brought in somewhat late in the project. Um, I was brought in in August of 2015. Um, to just bring a fresher perspective uh, to the soundtrack. George was feeling as though he wasn't... The movie just wasn't sounding the way he wanted it to sound. And uh, so he he reached out to me to come to Sydney and help him um, find it for him. And uh, I stayed in Sydney for six weeks to take over... Um, the sort of direction, the creative direction of of the sound design and sound editing. Um, And then we would eventually move that process to Los Angeles for another four or five months um, where we continued to design and edit and mix the film. It, It ended up, I was on the film for about seven months and we final mixed it three full times. Um, we, not to brag, but to maybe make a point of the the value, if, again, if you like the sound of Mad Max, the value that uh, sound, detailed sound work can bring to a film, we final mixed for something on the order of 75 days. You know, that that would be a filming schedule for, for most films. But, but the, the kind of, uh, the, the opportunity it gave us to um, iteratively improve the film every time we went through it is 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 seen and heard in the final product. So can you explain maybe like what happened between the second final mix and the third final mix? Like at what point did you realize that the second final mix wasn't or not you but uh, George or well the the uh, the big difference was the uh, first to the second mix in fact the first mix was more of a triage mix to get us to a first preview in Los Angeles to play for an audience. And um, that was really uh, just trying to get through six weeks of, of, of a final mix that George would sign off on, knowing that I didn't have the resources at my fingertips to fully make it the way I wanted to make it. After finishing that mix in Sydney, I pitched George the idea of kind of rethinking the big sound design moments in the movie because I had other ideas. I had new approaches I wanted to to, to work on and I, I, I pitched George in a three-page letter um, what I would do differently and he responded to that and uh, that meant bringing it back to Los Angeles, bringing on a, a, t- uh, a new team and taking kind of a fresh approach to it. I'm telling this story because there's something really valuable in it and that, that is this sort of overarching idea of the importance of sound to the success of a movie in every possible way. After we finished the first mix, we previewed in Burbank 
California. And we received a decent score. You know, when you run it for an audience, I'm presuming our audience understands this idea of an audience preview. You test an unfinished version of the movie, semi-polished, in front of an audience who's never seen the, the film before. And then they do this scoring system, and it's rated, you know, zero to 100. We got something like a 78 or 79. Not a great score, kind of a C+. Um, That was with the original mix. After returning to Los Angeles and working on it for another couple of months and reimagining the sound of the film, now understand, too, that the score was done, the um, visual effects were done, and the edit, for all intents and purposes, was done. They were still refining VFX shots, but not the kinds of things that are material. The only difference after that second mix was the sound that we'd brought to it, and we re-previewed. And that preview yielded an 88, a 10-point change wow. in, in the perception of the enjoyment and success of the film due specifically to the new sound work that we had done. Now, there are people in Hollywood and probably around the world that can put a number, a dollar value, on every point that a, f- a film garners in its, its audience preview score. We made sound made... Um, a dramatic impact on the value and the success and ultimately I think the box office of that film. Uh, that, that's a gospel. We, ha- we have to get that message out. We have to preach that. Yeah. I, I, I can't point to any one thing because it's so many things. Every single sound that of, of any import except perhaps Foley. Foley was left pretty much intact. Um, all the vehicles were sweetened. All the big dynamic moments were sweetened and added to. You know, any gunshot explosion, um, dream sequence, um, v- you know, vehicle-related sound. Everything in the film was reimagined, as was the way we approached them in the mix. Um, we took a very, very disciplined approach to the mix as well by plotting it dynamically and 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 in fact one of the very last passes we made and it was almost a week was simply to address dynamics nothing else in mind but are we too loud here could it could it be louder could it be softer what should take the lead here should it be music or sound effects or both or none Um, in other words how are we using sound dynamically to tell the story we didn't want to concentrate on anything else i've never done anything like that on another film where we spent a week on what does the envelope of this film look like and how can we make it better? And, and going back to this previous idea of the iterative process, it was like, you know, like a, a great woodworker, he sprays on a layer of shellac or, or finish and rubs it with a 200 grit compound. And that's one level of, of, of sheen. Then it takes 100 grit, then a 40 grit, then a 10 grit, then a 6... You know what I mean? You, 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 I'm, I'm sorry, I'm going in the wrong direction. The six way, grits. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going in a complete wrong... <laughs> ultimately ending up with that polishing compound to yield a beautifully shiny finish. Um, that was our process. We never rested feeling as though a sequence was completed. We, we took a, a, a whole concept of the film and never felt the whole film was completed. We'd run the movie stem to stern over and over again looking for areas that we could improve have you been able to take that technique and move it forward to pictures you've worked on since i did uh i i've, I've just finished that process on blade runner 2049 
um, uh, Denis Villeneuve, the director, understood this um, sort of instinctually, but never had practiced it until I explained it to him. And then he fully grasped it, and that was the final mix process for us, was not to belabor, uh, get sort of in the weeds, uh, sort of micromanaging a, a given sequence. He knew that the more important thing was to get a big shape to the movie quickly, and then step back, take a weekend off, and watch the film, having had a couple days in between, and see how it felt. And then we would talk about the movie again in terms of its envelope and shape and if we were telling story with sound. And then we'd spend another week going through the entire film, addressing the areas that we thought could uh, be improved. And, and, and that iterative process made the movie significantly more interesting to listen to. To jump back to Fury Road, had you worked with uh, the director before or were you coming in as a completely fresh uh, point of view? No, I had never worked uh, with George Miller before. I was quite surprised by the call. And candidly, I had the same reaction you had at the, the beginning of the show, another Mad Max. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hadn't been a particularly, uh, I wasn't a fan of Thunderdome. I loved the first two films, but, I, but it felt like studio sequelitis, mm -hmm. you know, as, as we see so often in the summer tentpole films. And and, but I, I thought the, the, the opportunity to work with George, who I deeply admired um, for films like Lorenzo's Oil and, uh, and Babe. Yeah, Babe. And, and um, even the, the, the what, were, what were the Penguin movies? I just loved the Penguin Happy movie. Happy Feet. Happy Feet. I just thought he was a brilliant director, and it was worth the go. But no, I, I didn't know George before this. And was this your first time working with Dennis as well? Or Denny, sorry? It was, yeah. What a mensch! What a, what a, what a, he's. I thought I had reached the mountaintop with George, <laughs> um, because George, to me, you know, if you looked up in the Mark Mangini dictionary of descriptions of a director, George was there as the apotheosis, the the epitome of collaborative, creative, brilliant, fun, funny, the best experience ever. Uh, I didn't think I could top that. I'm not sure um, I've topped it, but Denig certainly gets to share that mountaintop with George because of his, all, all those superlatives I just outlined, his ability to give me artistic freedom a as a filmmaker to, to let sound tell story, to impose my ideas on the narrative uh, with sound and, and have him be open to them. Um, and his just general sort of demeanor and, and brilliance as a filmmaker is it's just, I, I had to pinch myself every day. Wow, that's, uh, <laughs> that's got to be a nice way to work. <laughs> it's the best. Is that kind of leeway or to be regarded as, you know, I don't overdo it, but like as an artist, as a sound designer, is that something you have to go and ask for or how do you claim that for your production not just for yourself you know I, I think it's all of the things you just mentioned and it also includes you 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 earn it and let's start with you earn it when working with a new filmmaker I think often in my experience the filmmaker is as nervous meeting you as you are of them because it's a little bit of a dance it's, and and you have to earn it because you are being hired for your ideas 
and it's incumbent upon you to have a few. <laughs> I think if you're going to be any good at this, if you're going to be any good at anything, you need to be uh, have an opinion and, and, and have the forcefulness of, and, and conviction of, of your own ideas to convey them in a way that, that is, is, is convincing. So my first meeting with Denis was one of, you know, this was my, my, my interview, was one of, Denis, here's where I think sound can be really valuable in this film, and here's the four or five ways that I think we can really do something great with your film. So X, Y, Z. Now, it's the, the filmmaker has the opportunity to decide that person's on my wavelength or not. And if, and if they make the decision that you are, you, you've got this immediate trust and you, you're brought into the family. You know, you're, you're in the, the sort of inner circle. And now great filmmakers like Denis and George and Gavin O'Connor, um, uh, they recognize that they're not doing this all on their own. They're not the, the sort of isolated geniuses that, that give directors a bad name. The really greats, and I've worked with a lot of great directors, recognize and solicit your input as, as an artist and a collaborator, and they want it. They desperately want it because they're smart enough to know they can't think of everything. <laughs> so it's really incumbent upon you to earn it to go and do what you were trained to do, to have ideas and to, 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 to explain how you're going to achieve them. Now, uh, the flip side of that is, Teresa, kind of touching on a little bit of what you just said as well, is that being notable in my community is a, a blessing and a curse. Um, you get some free passes that you don't deserve. <laughs> There's a little bit of, especially since winning an Oscar, I'm beginning to recognize this, this sort of deference syndrome where, oh, Mark's won an Oscar, so whatever that idea that he has is, must be a good one, let's go with that. And I'm starting to see this sort of negative effect where in the old days, you know, you, you, you'd grit your teeth and say, oh, the director just didn't like that idea of mine. But it was, it was such an important part of your growth process. You need the challenge. You need the constant conflict. I'm getting less of that. I'm getting less pushback on my bad ideas. So, <laughs> yeah. so, so the reputation aspect of it uh, can be a, a curse. Yeah, I can totally see the both sides of that. Having been somebody who's like fighting for something but also being like I need to shut up and listen to what other people are proposing here. You know back to this whole idea of community and family and collaboration I'm a huge believer in discussion and deliberation and I think that's the most valuable thing one of the many valuable things that I can do and we can do with a filmmaker. I think great ideas come out of discussions and what I relish is is the sort of the slow time with a filmmaker where you can sit in the edit room and just shoot the breeze, talk about the movie, talk, try to forget about the, the immediate challenge in front of you and just work. It's like intelligent debate. I think it's through debate where you, you sort of bounce ideas off each other, much like writers do in a writer's room. 
it's just the best ideas come out of that, that interchange of ideas, something we're sadly missing in, in the political climate today. I, I think we can, we can all use, I, I think our political leaders could learn something from filmmakers, the great filmmakers, in our ability to um, challenge each other on our ideas for the common good. Not because we have a position, it's the right position, but we have a common goal in what's up there. That, and I'm pointing to the screen in front of me, <laughs> so I'm always looking at a screen. Um, what's, the, what's for the common good, which is that thing called our movie, our nation, our well-being? It's through, it's through debate that we find uh, common ground. And that's where I've gotten my, my greatest foothold with filmmakers, is in those conversations. We need to talk with each other. And so I, 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 I um, recommend that regularly. So when you're sitting with these filmmakers, how far into the process are you bringing them into your edit room? Are, you, are they sitting with you a lot, or are you waiting till you're feeling pretty confident in it and bringing them in and showing them ideas? Well, it's, it's not very early. What, what I like to ask for is some, a flurry of meetings to sort of get to know you. Mm -hmm. you have these conversations, get a sense of what their dramatic challenges are. I, I don't even really want to understand the, the sound challenges right away. I'd, I'd rather sit in the edit room and watch the movie together and find out why the filmmaker doesn't think a scene is working or where they think a scene is really working. And then I ask for a, at least a month to go away on a traditional schedule and budget and uh, have the opportunity to just sort of free associate. And that allows me to just start building a palette of sounds that I don't know what I'm going to do with, but I have an idea that emotionally the sounds that I'm recording or creating will fit somewhere. And then, then I begin including the, the filmmakers in the process of review. I start fitting sounds to picture, and when I feel like I have something that's worth presenting, um, I'll bring them to my studio or um, go to the edit room and, and present and begin a very lengthy process of, of sound design review till we've gotten to the point where at least all the really important sound beats, beats where sound is telling story, are fully fleshed out knowing that we can go into final mix and there will be nothing that the, the director will hear that he hasn't heard before. I think that's a pretty important goal that the the final mix should be the apotheosis of that process whereby the filmmaker can be in full bloom making the filmmaking decisions, not the nitty-gritty decisions. They, they shouldn't be sweating, why does, the, why does the spaceship sound like that? They should be making the decision of, you know what, we shouldn't be, I don't want to hear the sound of a spaceship, I just want to hear the music here. We should have sweat out all the details long before the final mix so that the, the, the filmmaker can really hone their, 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 their focus on, am I telling my story? I mean, you know this yourselves when you're on a, a creative jag in the studio and you got an idea that you got to get it out. It's like, you know, you got to get the poison out. You got you to express the idea. The worst thing that can happen in the middle of that process for a sound designer is to be interrupted with, oh shit, Pro Tools crashed, or I don't have my tracks bust correctly, or any one of a, or a phone call, or, or, or anything else that interrupts the creative flow. So we really have to create that, that bubble of intimacy for the filmmaker as well. You don't want them to be on a flow of crafting a scene and have that grind to a halt 
and get in the weeds with, well, you know what? I, I don't like that rumbly thing, but I like that shrieky thing. And to kind of begin deconstructing the sound effects, that really ruins a moment. And I think filmmakers being slightly more empathetic than, you know, your directors and actors, you're a little more empathetic than perhaps we are as sound designers, um, feel that harder than we do. And I, I try to protect that for them. So it, it's, it's really valuable to get your sound beats worked out ahead of time as much as you possibly can. There are filmmakers who don't want to participate in the process, though. It's odd. I mean... It's it's so strange, especially on the, the VFX-heavy films, how the last three months of a film become consumed mostly with DI, visual effects meetings, um, publicity meetings. And I, I begin to lose contact with my filmmakers at the most critical point. Yeah, I'm going through something very similar right now where I just wish the director would weigh in and give me his opinion on certain matters. So I'm sorry for you. I feel your pain. It strikes me after seeing a few uh, different films recently, uh, like notably Arrival, something really interesting is happening where the score sometimes uh, on a film is like sort of an experimental score. It blends in so well with the sound design, like so thoroughly with the sound design, that you get into a situation where you can't really make a distinction between which is which. It's becoming increasingly common that that composers bring a, 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 a track that they even call sound design. And uh, of course, as a sound designer, most of my work is sound design. And these sounds often occupy a similar range and, and approach. So there is this blurring of the lines that, you know, I could see a, a future just as you know, and the people listening know, the sound editing slash sound design community and the sound mixing community are kind of fusing. In the last 20 years, you see more and more hybrids, for lack of a better term, of individuals who both mix and edit or mix and design. Um, and we can see a universe where 20 years hence, that's one person and that's almost ev the way every film is made. We understand that crossover. I, I can see a universe where that continues to happen with music and sound. I mean, many of the great sound designers I know started life as musicians and that's part of the core of what makes them good at what they do. I, I can see 20 years hence being hired as the sound designer, because sound design in its every form includes music. Music is sound, just organized in a different way. So maybe we'll see that uh, blending of the two. It, it, it could change. We, we might, you know, you might see in, in film schools uh, in the future uh, a, simply a course on composition, because I think, and I've been preaching for a long time, that what we do is composition. There's no need to bifurcate and segregate or ghettoize sound design as something that isn't music. Because I'm an ASCAP, I've been a composer all my life, and when I'm a sound designer, the tonalities I choose, the rhythms I opt for, uh, the voicings, the timbres, the, the emotional impact that every single sound I choose is considered and deliberate. How different is that from what a composer does? The difference is, is that I tend to use uh, 
dissonance more than most traditional composers. I use enharmonic intervals. I work in ways that aren't as readily recognizable as composition because you can't hear my melodies unless you're, you're sophisticated like you two are. So, um, but again, it's, it's important to get back to this idea of composition. There's nothing unstructured and unmusical about what a sound designer does. It's a little harder to create notation for what we do in a soundtrack, but that isn't to say that what you look at in a Pro Tools session couldn't be considered notation. So why aren't we composers? I guess they don't want to give us royalties like they have to give the composers. <laughs> yeah, you can't have both Oscars. <laughs> well, we've been talking a lot about composers, and they pick samples and record instruments. And as a sound designer, I guess your weapons of choice are field recordings and the palettes that you can build through field recording. I was wondering if you could tell me how important that is to your sound design. Uh, it's, it's, it's the foundation of what I do. That's, again, why the, the, the library that I'm publishing with Pro Sound Effects is so important because it's, it's 41 years of field recording, of being in my underwear at two in the morning recording a, a, a thunderstorm because it happened. Yeah, to be clear, you didn't need to be in your underwear. That's just how you field <laughs> record. Right. You don't want that rustling of your jeans. <laughs> I'd like to talk for a second about how you budget time to get the field recording done. Uh, maybe we could use the upcoming film that you did the sound design for, Blade Runner, as an example. So how did you time out and plan all the field recording for that? It never stopped. Uh, you know, it, I, I'm going to tell you what I do, and I'm going to tell your listeners to either model themselves after me or not because it's because it's I, I, on one hand I can't help myself because I'm a recording addict on the other hand the way I operate is is antithetical to everything I believe about about um, sort of fair practices in filmmaking but I, I record constantly and like I say if it's two in the morning which I did a lot of on Blade Runner because it takes place in the rain uh, uh, like the first film, and we had this once-in-a-generation uh, set of rains in Los Angeles in the early spring. I was out and about with my recorder at three in the morning recording rains for three months. Now, that isn't, um, that isn't time I can bill the client for, but it, I do it because it's just it, – it's, it's part of – I wanted fresh recordings and this is the time to do it. And if they're going to pay me for it, that's great. If they're not, the movie needs it anyway. And I think all of us have a certain amount – to be in this business in the first place, to be in post-sound, you have to be a little compulsive – Right, you you do things that don't aren't always in your best interest, so that's why that's why we we're always constantly recording because we put everything into our work. So I I record feverishly. I I own thirty thousand dollars worth of recording gear. I have twenty five microphones. I have three digital recorders. I have every manner of 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 uh, tool to aid me in being able to put a microphone somewhere. So uh, I guess because I'm a geek for it, I, you know, I'd do this for a living even if I weren't, I, I'd do this even if I weren't being paid because I just love it. So I'm just, I, just, I, would re I just like recording sounds. That's why I'm doing this. I just, it's, they're like possessions. They're like, I'm trying to think of another analogy of obsessive collection. Uh, maybe collecting guitars. 
Oh, as you can see, yeah. well, there's another obsession. <laughs> yeah, for the listeners, while we're interviewing Mark, he's in his office, and in the wall behind him is uh, just a wall of guitars of any kind and type. Yeah. It's pretty amazing. Yeah. So I, I, don't, I, I can't say enough about the recording thing. I, I'm, I record constantly. That's awesome. It's inspirational. Uh, a couple minutes ago, you were talking about what you think sound might be like 20 years from now. Maybe now let's take a step back and go 20 years back to the movie The Fifth Element. Uh, our normal co-host, Renee Coronado, couldn't be here for this interview, but he asked me to ask you about working on The Fifth Element, and in particular, the scene where the opera singer is singing, and all of a sudden, uh, all hell breaks loose in the theater. If you could just tell me how you pulled all those different elements together, because there's so much sound going on between the music, the sound effects, the gunfire. Uh, if you could just talk about how that massive, amazing scene came together and became kind of a classic scene. Yeah, that was an important discussion with our film editor, Sylvie Landra, because we wanted to make sure that all the sound beats fell on proper musical beats. You know, we're intercutting between Lilu. Fight, uh, you know, in that room, and then she's fighting with the Mangalores, and there's like you know a fist fight and gunshots and door bangs and all that sort of chaos off camera being intercut, and we just wanted to make sure that played in a, in a sort of a, a, a deliciously rhythmic way. So it was a, just a simple process of really of, of sort of mapping out all those sounds, roughing in temporary ones, sending off to Sylvie so that she could make sure that the edit. So that where visually the the hit or the body fall or the gunshot landed on on the appropriate musical beat, Th those those were really the, the the singular challenges. The you know the musical aspect of it, Eric Sarah had already kind of preordained, and it was it was a unique and fascinating composition in and of itself. It was just making sure it all felt like part of a piece. Yeah, and you know we had some some really great sound effects editors. There, you know, there were times when there would be a multiplicity of beats within a scene that, you know, we would all I always cut against score if I have it. And sometimes you'd cheat a sound off of its visual sync because it was more pleasing because of its musical sync. If it was within two or three frames, you could get away with it, and you'd you'd find interesting rhythms within the sound effects that you could associate with, with the score. Um, just little bits of found, just found moments that are fun. They just happen by accident. And Eric and I would exchange emails on occasion and talk about the sounds and textures that we were going to be using so that we were a little bit more in sync. This is a conversation that, you know, started early on Fifth Element that I came into sort of full flower on uh, Mad Max, where I spent every morning with Tom Holkenborg, a.k.a. Junkie XL, the composer. He and I had coffee every morning on the way to the studio, and we'd talk about what we were going to do with the mix. And he, he brought a very dense sound design layer in his track, and we worked out kind of ahead of time, um, obviating the those sort of classic fights that you have on a mixed stage where the composer wants to hear their cue and the sound designer wants to hear the sounds that they've made and nobody's paying attention to what should be on screen. Uh, Tom and I would work that out over lattes and espressos before we got to the studio. Oh, that's also very civilized. It can be. If you, you know, Junkie is, is just a really rare individual where, you know, 
he just wants what's best for the movie. And he knew, saw immediately in me a, a kindred spirit. And we, we, it was very comfortable to work that out. Uh, I've, I've worked with composers who didn't want that. And I think to the detriment of the movie. Well, Mark, thank you very much for coming on the show today. We really appreciate you making the time to talk with us. And uh, I personally appreciated the way you like talking about more than uh, the bit rates and sample rates and kind of get above that and rise up into the clouds and talk about the more esoteric stuff. You know, the bit rate stuff is fun. I, I geek out with that stuff, but I'm on this mission to sort of elevate our... I, I'm getting stuck in the clouds, and unfortunately, I'm, I don't do enough of the, the other stuff, but I'm, I, I'm doing it because I really want to elevate our art form and be seen as collaborators and artists by filmmakers because that's just going to mean we get better budgets, better schedules, more respect, better awards... So that's part of my giving back process as I'm aging. I'm, so I'm getting stuck in the clouds. So I apologize if I didn't talk much about the plug. No, 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 please. This was exactly what we wanted. I, it was a wonderful conversation, and I can't thank you enough for taking part. Thank you. My pleasure. Okay, thanks to everyone who listens and participates in the show. Huge thanks to Teresa Morrow for taking part in our discussion today and sitting in the co-host chair with me. Thanks, T. Thank you, Tim. And to Mark Mangini for filling us up with a big dose of inspiration and a bunch of ideas to chew on. Thanks for sitting in with us again, Mark. Thank you both. It was fun. Keep an eye out for Mark's new sound effects library released through the good folks at Pro Sound Effects. It's called the Odyssey Collection Essentials, and it includes around 16,000 general sound effects recorded by today's guest, Mark Mangini, as well as Richard L. Anderson. Curated from over 250 feature films over their careers, including a few we spoke about today, you can find the link to the library and how to buy a copy for yourself on our website, tomebenderspodcast.com, or go straight to prosoundeffects.com. Thanks to Stacy Dupass for letting us bend and twist her voice as usual on our bumpers. You can leave the show a tip via PayPal. A link can be found easily on our website. As you hopefully know, Renee and I, and sometimes Teresa, do all of this podcast in our own spare time, spending our own money on it. So if you feel you get anything out of the show at all, and you can spare a few bucks to help us cover the costs of servers and getting around and setting up all these interviews, it would be greatly appreciated. You can find the link on our website under Leave a Tip. If you feel like you can't help us financially, we totally get it. There are other ways you can help, though. You can send us an email at info at tonebenderspodcast.com and offer to help us edit future episodes. You can uh, design three to five second audio transfers we can use in the shows as bumpers to get from segment to segment. Or the best and easiest thing you can do is if you know anybody in the sound design world, field recordings, audio post world, let them know about the podcast so we can get to as many ears as possible. Renee and I and sometimes Teresa, put a lot of work into this. And uh, the more people that listen to it, the better, because uh, it makes the work a little easier to do when you know that it's getting out there. But we have awesome fans, and we appreciate everything that you guys do to keep the podcast going. So thank you very much. Okay, that's it for this episode. We already have a bunch of stuff lined up for the next few months. We got some Oscar winners coming up. We got some cool tech talks coming up. Uh... Oh, my son just walked in the room. Hello, Fletcher. How are you doing? One second, okay? Thanks for listening. Catch you soon. Over and out. Who is, who is that? Who is who? Wait, what was that for? That's a microphone. Thanks for listening to Tone Feathers. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to ToneVendorsPodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. 
You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the Tone Vendors on Twitter or find Tone Vendors Podcast on Facebook and YouTube. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at tonevendorspodcast.com.